Baptist, where a team from our church went and visited uh, some months back. And um, Barbara Humphreys oversaw that and, and organised that. And part of that was to have some ongoing connection, ongoing relationship with them. So uh, I've uh, spoken to their pastor and we've had some good conversations. And uh, he's um, very encouraged that we would um, be coming out there and be speaking to a men's ministry on Sunday, on the Saturday morning, and then speaking to the church and just encouraging them. And, and really, in between that time, just sitting and listening and uh, learning and getting a, a deeper sense of, um, of the, the drought out there and, and some of the, uh, the, the conditions that their town are experiencing. So we're looking forward to that. We will miss worshipping with you next Sunday, um, but we will definitely uh, be back and looking forward to continue worshipping um, as our local church here. So I'm going to pray and uh, then we're going to get into God's Word and, uh, and have a look at Chapter 2 uh, of Ecclesiastes. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what it means to be your church. We thank you for gathering us here in this space at this time. Uh, we thank you for the privilege it is to be known by you and to be able to know you through Jesus Christ. You indeed are a holy God, worthy of our praise, our adoration. And uh, Father, it's just, it really is a miraculous thing that you would so choose to clearly reveal yourself and speak to us uh, through your word and by your spirit. And so we pray that that'll happen this morning as we unpack uh, this ancient wisdom, these ancient musings about life under the sun. And we ask this uh, for the sake of your kingdom and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you do have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them uh, or turn them on or whatever it is you do uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we're just going to recap a little bit. Some of you may not have been here last Sunday. It's quite possible. And, um, and so we're just going to recap. We started this series in Ecclesiastes last Sunday. And we saw from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3, right from the outset, the writer of Ecclesiastes asks this big question of meaning and purpose in life. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? And we were challenged to think about um, what do you gain from all the work, all the effort, all the energy that you expend in life? What makes all of that worthwhile? What makes that valuable? And if you really want to make your life count for something, if you want your life to mean something, if you want it to have intrinsic value and purpose, then what do you gain uh, from all the hard work? Uh, we learned that it was most likely King Solomon who's, uh, who's written this book, or at least the book was certainly written uh, by perhaps an author uh, reflecting on King Solomon's experiences and musings. But Solomon is called here the teacher, referred to as the teacher. And the teacher ha has set himself up, basically, to experiment in life. Uh, now, it's a hindsight thing. He didn't start out with experiments. It's kind of something he's written down and shown us in, at the end of his life as he's looking back over his life. Um, but he sets up these, these, um, these experiments. He's like a, a human guinea pig, if you like. And uh, it's all about experimenting, trying to find out an answer to that fundamental question. What's the point of work? What's the point of, of chasing after things, including work and a whole lot of other things, as he puts it, while we live under the sun? And for those who may not have been here last Sunday, just to recap... In chapter 1, Solomon looks at the cycles and the patterns of creation. He looks around at nature, the weather, the things that can be seen. And he looks at them all and he concludes that compared to our lives as human beings, um, we're the ones that seem to come and go, here one minute, gone the next, but the creation, the world, 
everything we see, seems to stay around forever. He says in in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And the problem is, uh, with this endless repetitive um, cycle that he observes in nature, it, it appears that everything goes back to where it came from. It goes back to where it was, where it was first originated. Um, think about the sun, he says, in verse 5. The sun rises one day and then it sets at the end of the day. It goes back to where it came. And then it goes all the way around again and it does it around and around. He says the wind does the same thing. The wind blows to the south in verse 6 and then he says it ends up coming back to where it came from, the north. Verse 7, he looks at the water and the streams and those patterns of, of weather and he says they do a similar thing. Um, the streams flow and then they get precipitated. The clouds take them and dump them back on the land and they flow out again. It just keeps going over and over and over. The point is this. Everything he observes goes back to where it started. And we saw, as he said, that this is utterly meaningless, futile, absurd, is what he says. It's like a vapour. It's a seemingly endless cycle that outlasts all of us. So just keep that in mind as we um, just skip ahead. We're going to skip chapter 2 just for a moment and get a sneak peek at chapter 3, verse 20, because this is where he's, this is his main sticking point. This is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 20. He says, all go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Can you see what he's doing here? He's observing something in nature and he says, they all do it. They all just keep going around and around and around. It goes back to where they started. And all, by this point, he's talking about human beings and animals. He's saying, we all end up in the same place. We all came from dust and we all go back to us. The sun, it returns to where it started. The wind, it returns to where it started. The river, it goes back to where it started in chapter 3, verse 20. And so do we. Meaningless. Absolutely futile. All go to the same place. Which, of course, is a reference to Genesis. We were created by God from the dust. It's where we've come from. And that's where we will return. Generations come and generations go back to dust. Generations come and generations go. And worse still, uh, um, worse still, once we've come and we've gone, we're not even going to be remembered in between starting from dust and returning to dust. And he laments all the way through here. He says, no matter how you build up your life, whether it's with wealth or with experiences or with stuff, you're going to hand it over to someone else after you and soon you'll be forgotten in the first place. Have a look at verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come won't be remembered by those who follow after them. I want you to think about it for a moment and I know in this church it's fairly risky because we're a pretty relationally connected church. There's a lot of generational families here but let's try it anyway. How many can tell me what their great-grandfather's middle name is. You don't, you're not allowed to look up Ancestry.com. What about your great-great-grandmother's maiden name? Mm. Mm. Okay, I know, you're all answering. Yeah, well done. It's not working, is it? Um, but, but the point's there, isn't it? For some of us, we can't even think about it, or we don't know. For others, we've had to perhaps pause and think long and hard. But the truth is this. Even we are going to be forgotten by our loved ones. And most of us uh, here will be someone's great-great-grandfather or great-grandmother or perhaps a great-uncle or a great-auntie or a great-great-auntie or uncle. You will be in a family tree, all of us. And the generation alive at the time of your birth 
or, or at the time won't even know our middle name or our maiden name as great-great-grandparents, great-great-auntie and uncles, much less what it is we did with our lives, much, much less anything else. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? We will be forgotten, every single one of us. So what's worth doing with our lives in the meantime before we return to dust? And that's what Solomon's doing here. The teacher, that's his big question in chapter 2 this morning. And I want to suggest that it should be our question as well. It's worth asking. It's worth pondering about. And I think many people do ask and ponder it, and they're left in the same situation Solomon is. It's all meaningless. It's utterly meaningless. Have a look at the state of mental health in our society. I think that comes from when we ponder and ponder and ponder without any satisfying answer, without any satisfying truth that can give us ultimate meaning in this life. And that's what Solomon does, and he goes about uh, these experiments. He's a smart guy. He was the wisest man of his time. In fact, uh, the known world declared and knew that the king of Israel, Solomon, son of David, was actually the wisest man to have ever lived. And that continues uh, to perpetuate uh, even to this day. People will claim and will say that uh, King Solomon, yes, he's known for his great wisdom. And he's also a guy, as a result of great wisdom, who accumulated a great lot of resources in the world. He had them all at his disposal. Not only was he um, the first king after the greatest king, who built Israel up to the, to the mightiest nation it was at the time, King David, but he continued to, to build on that and, and invested and continued to um, grow the kingdom. And he's able to throw everything that he has at this problem. And that's what he sets about doing. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens through the few days of their lives. This is the experiment he's on. And so he tries a series of them. We're going to look at just three from chapter 2. And the first one's this, the test of pleasure. It's the exper uh, experiment of pleasure in the first three verses of chapter 2. I think for most of us today, we know this one pretty well. The teacher says to himself, verse 1 of chapter 2, Come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Um, you know, when you think about our, uh, our society, we are without question the most entertained, pleasure-orientated society that's ever lived. We really are. I know we get compared to, and often we look back in history, and as Solomon says, nothing's new under the sun. But in terms of um, the scope and potential, nothing's new in that people seek entertainment and pleasure. That's what he means. But in terms of what we have access to, unprecedented. There's no question. Um, we can download, click, swipe, dial, open, buy, experience just about anything we set our minds to. Um, I walked into a JB Hi-Fi store recently. I haven't gone into JB Hi-Fi for a long time. It used to be just down the road at Westfield's um, uh, in Hornsby, so I'd often walk past it, but uh, it's a very loud store, you know, yellow and black and in your face and floor to wall stuff. Well, it hasn't changed in that extent, except that when I walked in there, I noticed the TVs had swollen. They've doubled in size yet again. And the last time I was in there, I stood back in awe at the, the size of these TVs. They are quite literally half the size of these couple of new ones that I saw. You don't even need a projector anymore. It's all now a flat screen TV. And they're just a handful of the portals of entertainment that were screaming at us, floor to ceiling, about how we could be entertained. Floor to ceiling, entertainment. And we really do have it pretty good today in terms of what we can access with entertainment, more than any generations before. Well, Solomon had it pretty good in his day too. But look at what he finds. Verse 2, he says, Laughter is madness. And what does pleasure actually accomplish? So the experiment with pleasure, he says, let's try and um, dull things a little bit. Let's try and add in a bit of drink, maybe one or two. 
So the teacher tries that as well, and he's still able to keep his wits on the experiment. This is how wise and genetically clever he was, uh, possibly. Um, he was able to indulge in much wine and at the same time keep his wits and focus on this experiment to make sure he's able to measure how it all goes. He says in verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind, however, still guiding me with wisdom. I bet you can think of a few people that, that try and do that today. Most of them are self-deluded, but anyway, maybe Solomon was too. The trouble is, as Solomon found, and as most people find, the wine doesn't work. Nor does the beer, or the scotch, or anything else that, you might, that might take your fancy. Neither does the $25 uh, cocktail with all the bright colours and the tropical flavours. Um, and so Solomon moves on to another experiment. And this we might call uh, the test of success. Verses 4 to 11. Here's the one that we parents often excel in. Uh, these are the hopes and dreams that we would have, many of us, for our children. And if we're especially good at our roles as parents, we'll even train and condition them for it. Um, work hard in life and make your mark. You've only got one life. Make it count. Verse 4, Solomon says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. It's exhausting. What an exhausting life. Don't you reckon? What a life. A life built from hard work, sure. A life, as a result, full of pleasures, all aimed at achieving great success. And he absolutely achieved it. We're still singing his praises and talking about him now, several thousand years later. But all the while... He's still analysing. He's still asking the tough questions. What have I gained from all my labours under the sun? Am I there yet? What's been the point of all this? Well, here's his conclusion at the end of experiments one and experiments two. He says in verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Isn't that tragic? You know, Solomon's experiments so far have been just as much fun as you might think they would be. Uh, who'd have thought that building palaces and gardens and all those sorts of things would be fun? Fulfilling your ambitions... It's fun. We, we get that, right? We need to admit that. It is fun. Which is why I guess so many of us in our society continue today to be addicted to it and driven by it and motivated by it. Well, Solomon admits that it was fun and he says it was even rewarding to some extent. He says, my heart took delight in all my labour and, and this was the reward for my toil. So he could see the correlation. Work hard and you will gain success of some sort. You will gain amass wealth and you'll be able to spend it on good things and live a better life. Sure, there is reward for hard work. 
But there's still this nagging question. What have I gained? So what? And this is something I think only comes with wisdom and comes with, how do I say it, multiple years of experience. And that's what Solomon was when he wrote this. He's looking back on his life and yet he stands there with everything at his fingertips and says, but what have I gained? What have I gained that I can really hold on to? All dreams have come true, but so what? You know, uh, Jim Carrey, the famous uh, comedian who's gone a little bit nuts lately, I, I believe, but um, a very funny guy and, and uh, has an array of um, comedic films and so on, and he's, he's hilarious. But he said this once, and I think he's being rather somewhat facetious. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. He's a bit of a Solomon, isn't he? Perhaps without the wisdom. And the teacher would agree with him because here's the problem. You might have noticed already, the teacher says it over and over and again, this is all just meaningless. It, it, it's a vapour, it's smoke and mist. Uh, in fact, that's, whenever you see meaningless in Ecclesiastes, that's, it's more accurate to say vapour and mist. That's what, that, that's what he means. It's something you just can't take a hold of. Everything's vapour, vapour. Everything's vapour, it's gone. It just dissipates like the mist. Like the mist. No matter what you make, no matter what you earn, no matter what you buy with it, what pleasure and fun you experience and, and that you spend it on, it never really satisfies. It always slips through your fingers and it soon becomes a distant memory or it becomes yesterday's latest fad or it becomes last year's ageing model. Think of cars, not people, by the way. And that's what Solomon concludes about all his grand designs in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was vapour, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You remember his question right at the start, what do people gain from all their labours? Well, his answer after these experiments is zip. Nothing. That's the bottom line. And even though we've still got several chapters to go through, which we'll look at and unpack some more, he says right up front, in these first few chapters, that when he looked at everything he'd achieved, everything he'd accomplished, all the successes he enjoyed, all the fun and pleasure, nothing was gained. Because it's just like a vapour. And you know what? Nothing has changed. I'm sure this resonates with lots of people. It's just vapour. There's nothing to take hold of and to make life count for. Well, as a third experiment, we keep hearing how wise Solomon is. Maybe wisdom will help. The test of wisdom and folly. He's already seen that there's these kind of two opposing parts to life, wisdom and foolishness. And this is his third experiment. Experiment 3.0. What about a good education? What about applying your mind to wisdom, to, to knowing um, how to live life with worth and value? That's what the teacher's doing here. He says in verse 12, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. I think what we're reading here is actually the first person to do a, um, a psychology degree, a PhD uh, in, in the School of Hard Knocks, one might say, to attain a psychology degree. So let's look at the result. Verse 13, this is what he says. I saw that wisdom is actually better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. You see, here's the problem for this wise king, gaining all the wisdom he can in ruling his kingdom. And it's the same thing faced by every president, every prime minister, 
every premier, every business owner, every foreman, every shift supervisor, every educational leader, every pastor of a church, the same fate, no matter what, takes over us all. The wise and the fool end up the same. So he continues in verse 15, So then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is vapour. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Do you know, uh, I thought about this in, in a year of, uh, uh, of deaths. We've had several sort of deaths. I guess that's what happens when celebrities get older. And um, 2016 was a bad one, but I'm thinking back to 2011. And, uh, and in particular this year, it was significant. One person uh, for me personally, and I looked at, compared to other deaths that had happened at the same time, but two men died on opposite sides of the world. The first one uh, you're familiar with was Steve Jobs, the founder in, and inventor of, of Apple. Uh, most of us, in fact, you could say a, a, a massive part of the world would know at least something of Steve Jobs, the ruthless genius whose global impact through technology has literally changed the way we relate to each other, has literally changed the way we uh, access and absorb information and how we interact with it. And that's what he set out to do. He's been known to say a whole lot of things. One of them was, I just want to make a dent in the universe. Well, he's certainly done that in our time. A second man died that same year, John Stott. John Stott was one of the greatest 20th century pastor theologians in evangelicalism. He wrote some 50 books, uh, some of which were only printed in Chinese, Korean or Spanish. Uh, that's on top of what he wrote for the English-speaking world. He published countless articles and papers on, the Bi papers on the Bible, on church leadership and in particular on mission. He founded the Langham Partnership International, which is a, a global gathering of uh, like-minded uh, people who, uh, from all different denominations who think about mission and, and how to uh, engage the world with the good news of Jesus. He also, uh, in the early 80s, established uh, what's known as the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. So uh, one was sort of engaged with uh, uh, developing worlds, the other organisation was engaged with um, Western worlds. Billy Graham said of him uh, upon his death in 2011 that he had lost a, a personal friend. He was grieving the loss of a personal friend and one of the greatest contributors to evangelicalism ever. Christianity Today wrote an obituary and this is what they said. He was an architect of 20th century evangelicalism who shaped the faith of a generation. Now think about these two guys. Both these men have massively impacted and changed the world by their life's work, what they dedicated their life to. One was incredibly wise and devoted to God, and that's why he was wise, because early on he had uh, come to faith and trust and understand that he wasn't God, despite his intelligence, that there was in fact a God who created him, therefore there's always a God that's wiser than him. Um, you can't out-wise the one who created you and gave you the wisdom. And so in that sense, he was an incredibly wise person. And the other one wasn't at all devoted to God in any way and was quite uh, agnostic or perhaps even atheistic towards there being any other God. He, I think generally for a good significant part of his life, not, not knowing what he believed towards the end, but pretty much 
thought he and human achievement was at, was at the top and you could achieve whatever you put your work to. And so in that sense, according to the Bible, he was actually not wise, he was a fool um, because he didn't acknowledge his creator. But the tragedy of Ecclesiastes and of Solomon's third experiment is that both these men shared exactly the same fate in 2011. They both died and all their work has been left to others to deal with, to manage, to continue working on. And so the teacher concludes when he looks at that experiment, he says, you know what, I just hate life. That's what he comes to. That's his conclusion. Because no matter how hard that he looks for the gain in it, all the work that he's done under the sun is just a pain in the neck, is what he says here. It grieves him. It's all vapour. All of it's chasing after the wind. He hates all the things that he has. He's toiled for these things. He's toiled so hard for them because in the end, he's got to leave them to a whole lot of sons, a whole lot of others who probably don't value them in the same way he will. And they could even potentially, as history showed us, undo all his hard work. Have a look at verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, So my heart began to despair over all the toilsome labour under the sun, for a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. I always think about David Cook, the CEO who, uh, who came in uh, with the Apple organisation corporation after Steve Jobs. I mean, he's taken over this empire, hasn't he? Who knows where it's going to go, which direction it'll go. Um, I wonder what Steve Jobs might think about that if he were able to look and see what's happened. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? Well, that's the question we started with, and the answer is this, sleepless nights, grief and pain. It's what he says here. Uh, as you toss and turn on your pillow, you, you know this feeling, don't you? Up in the middle of the night, mind spinning, the list of to-dos, new ideas, new directions, the dissatisfaction with what, you've, what, what you're stuck in at the moment. And around and around it goes. The thoughts and the troubles are as dark as the night you're laying on the bed awake in. Verse 23, all their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Well, how are you feeling at this point? Because you know what? The world has an opinion to try and encourage us by at this point. You know what the world says about this, don't you? <clears throat> the world says, well, you just got to suck it up and milk life dry for all it's worth. Get the most out of it, whatever you can, because you've only got from dust to dust this short period of time and work away, survival of the fittest, the ones that work the hardest will get the most and the rest, eh, you can have some scraps if I'm feeling loosely generous. But that's the message. And if it doesn't work out, if all your effort didn't work out and you invested wrongly or unwisely or you were, had this lazy streak you couldn't get rid of or whatever it is, um, that's okay. Just check out. We're done. There's nothing more. And, and you think about our society today. We, we've come to and we're on the verge of it. We're, we're still well and truly there. It takes a while, but we're now looking at ways to embrace death, to actually encourage it, make it a, a lifestyle choice, a, of a choice to end. You can say, you know what? Nah, this is getting too hard. I'm out. Death is now starting to be sold as a friend we can embrace. Uh, you may remember a guy by the name of David Goodall uh, back in, I think it was May 2018. He was 104 years old and he decided that year that he was going to end his life by lethal injection. He was the first one. He went to Switzerland where the laws 
didn't exist, and uh, he was allowed to do that. And uh, it was celebrated all over the media. Celebrated. What, a, what an amazing man. What a strong, courageous man. That at 104 years, he would stop being a burden on society and he would take responsibility for the end of his life and he would cease to exist. A GoFundMe uh, page was set up and they raised $21,000 to fly him there first class as a last little kind of tip, <clears throat> I guess, a bit of encouragement. You see, the teacher knows, in fact, the whole Bible knows because it tells us all the way through that death is nothing to be celebrated. Nothing to be celebrated. You might have seen a, a joke the other day on YouTube getting around of a guy, an Irish guy in his coffin and he'd done a pre-recording um, and so they're all grieving around the coffin and at the right time, one of his daughters, I think, played it and it went like this. Hello? Hey, what's going on? And everyone's like, what? Let me out, it's really dark in here. You know, with the Irish accent. I think that was Irish. Um, but, um, you know, I sat there and that's what happened. The crowd started one by one, you know, a bit alarmed, a bit puzzled, a bit confused. And then one by one they started laughing and breaking out. It's gone viral and it went everywhere. And the, um, you know, the, the, the prophets of today, like Carl Sanderland, sort of made it a big issue. And, um, wow, what, what a great guy. What, what a great guy to just sort of soften the blow, you know, to just candy things up a little bit, make it a little bit happy and a little bit fun. But there's, there's nothing fun. There's nothing joyous about death. Nothing to really celebrate. And the teacher wants us to know here that death ultimately brings everything you've ever worked for completely undone. All your efforts worthless because of death. Which is why we need, I think, to turn to the words of Jesus. We need to step off this treadmill that Solomon's got us on. This treadmill of just living life of endless cycle under the sun, where everything returns to where it came from. We need to step out of Ecclesiastes for a minute and sort of have a look at a bigger perspective. And before we get to Jesus, Solomon actually does that. He concludes the chapter with this very rare few passages where he actually does take a step back and he acknowledges God. It doesn't happen much in this book at all. In fact, we never hear from God in Ecclesiastes. God never speaks. And Solomon rarely mentions him. But in this case, he does. Have a look at it. Verses 24 to 26. He remembers God for a moment. He says, A person can do nothing, nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is a gift from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, that is the person that doesn't please him, the person that doesn't acknowledge him, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is a chasing after the wind. Here's the challenge for us today and every day in our affluent part of the world. Our pleasure-pursuing, success-seeking, knowledge-gaining society. The teacher says that if you're trying to fill a hole with more and more of any of that stuff, more and more money, more and more stuff, more and more knowledge and understanding, that too is going to leave you unsatisfied. It's a vapour. A quote from Bob Marley I found uh, he spent most of his life smoking weed and, and singing reggae songs, but he was a little bit wise at points, and uh, he said this at one stage about life. He said, money is numbers, and numbers never, ever end. If it takes money to be happy, your search for happiness will never end as well. That's living under the sun, and we're looking each week at how we can truly understand what it means to live under the sun, S-O-N, under Jesus Christ. What is it that he says? We can have a look at him just briefly he actually speaks to this specifically. 
It's not until Jesus comes that we get to see that there's something much bigger than just this endless cycle. Mark chapter 8, verses 36 to 37, he asked that question, what good is a man? What good is a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And when Jesus says something like that, it's worth taking notice because so many do that. And he's not saying you can't enjoy this world. Jesus demonstrated how to enjoy and engage and enjoy the good things of the Lord in this world with his friends. Uh, There is good things that God gives us to enjoy. Pleasure is not a bad thing. God created it. He gave it to us and he created us for it. But Jesus is suggesting here something even better and more worthwhile than just running around trying to get ahead and gain the world. And Jesus says it's actually possible to gain the world and to lose something else, our very souls, which is much more important. And you can chase the one and when you do, you'll risk losing the other. There's another two guys that come to Jesus in his life and they're arguing about an inheritance. It's in uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 20 to 21, where Jesus responds to them. And Jesus tells them a story about a rich farmer. And uh, this rich farmer has the best season ever. It's a bumper crop. So he builds bigger barns to store all his crops. And it's, quite, it's an interesting little dialogue. He goes, hmm, I've had a great year. I know what I'll do. I'll go and build more, bigger barns, so I can put all of what I've just made in there. I'll take it easy. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. But look, at this point, it does matter if you've been wise or if you've been a fool. Because have a look what Jesus says in verses 21 of Luke 12. He says, you fool, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Who gets the keys to your barn? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Jesus goes on to say, don't worry about all this stuff. Don't ruin your family by fighting over a stupid inheritance. Don't spend your life worrying about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. Life is far more important than that. And he goes on to say those words we all know. But seek first the kingdom of God and all those things will be added to you. That's what it means to be rich towards God. A kingdom which gives which opens up and gives way to true meaning and purpose, a whole lot more satisfaction in life. Serving a king who himself gave up everything, all his rights, on the cross and then rising again on the third day. And in so doing, conquering death. We're going to be looking at this in several weeks' time, more specifically, how Jesus actually conquers death and says it's not the end. It's actually not the end, even though every one of us will experience it. Well, I want to encourage you this morning, if you're someone who's tried everything or you're in the middle of trying everything or you're at early days of trying everything, wherever it is you stand, these are words we really need to heed. We need to look at an older Solomon and we need to listen to what he says and trust that his perspective is speaking truth into our our younger perspective for those of us who are young. And for those of us who are older and despairing and thinking, wow, what has my life meant? It's never too late to seek first the kingdom of God. It's never too late to truly dig down and understand where true satisfaction comes from. And so our souls won't be lost. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the way it's so timeless and so timely. We thank you for this message from Ecclesiastes. We pray now as we continue to celebrate who you are in our lives and what you've done for each one of us through Jesus. We pray that we'd be reminded uh, and and help help us to join the dots of how we can take uh, that command that encouragement to seek first his kingdom and to 
leave all the other pursuits and all the other things uh, to work themselves out. We ask that you'd help us to focus on that, that you'd help us to uh, change priorities, to tweak things in our lives, um, to reevaluate constantly, and to truly find joy and satisfaction and genuine godly pleasure at the good things you give us. We thank you, Father, for the ability to eat, to taste, to drink, to see, to hear. Um, the, the beauty that is all around us, um, the connection of, of, of good friends, of good relationships, of a loving family, all those things, Father, we, we get glimpses of. We know there's so much dysfunction in all of them, but we do get glimpses of when it's just perfect and just beautiful and good. We thank you, Father, and we acknowledge this morning that these things come from you. Help us to use them wisely and be good stewards of what you've given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.